0: Uh, Please be seated if you didn't already. Um, It's an exciting text, which might not be your initial reaction to it, but it actually is. Um, And as we look at where we've been in Romans, recapping as Paul has developed what he's saying so far. In Romans 1, he basically says, hey, everybody, it's me, right? And, like, praise to God for what he's called me to be and all this. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1, 16, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. That's his initial statement, his initial thesis. Then he turns to this, but the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness, And then we dive through the rest of chapter one into what that looks like. God giving people over to their sin and giving people over to more sin. And part of his punishment on their sin is to give them, let them have more sin. And then in chapter two, well, those who would condemn them are doing the same thing anyway, or giving their approval to it. And so those who might say, oh, I won't do that. Actually, you do. And Paul's calling the hypocrites out, essentially, (laughs) saying, those of you who think you're so righteous, you're also in a position of a problem, because you also are sinning. You're doing similar things. And he speaks specifically to the concept of circumcision in Jewish culture, and is that worth something inherently? Well, no, it's meant to be tied into what God is doing in your heart and in your life. And so if you're not actually following him, it's useless. And this concept in the early parts of chapter 2, God is going to give to each person in alignment with the things they've done. Like that the way that you behave in life is going to end up being reflected in the end. And the only way that you're going to be in a place of righteousness is through Jesus and through the Spirit's work in your life to do any good. But as he's developing this in chapter 2, he's showing Gentiles, the nations out there, all those people, Jews, those who have been God's people throughout history, are in the same spot. They're in the same exact place where they are called to holiness and none of them make it. And so we get to chapter three, and this is why he starts off with a question. What advantage has the Jew? He's responding to this entire setup in chapter two where he said, "Your circumcision doesn't count for anything unless you're actually following God. Your, your so-called righteousness is nothing because you're doing the same thing, all this kind of stuff. He's saying you think you have the law and that you're teaching other people and you're so great, but you're doing the same sin. So what advantage has the Jew is the natural question that he transitions to. So we're gonna look at this in in these 20 verses that Megan read for us. We're going to see what what Paul develops here, what God aims to show us here. Um, And as we do that, or as we start to do that, let's pray first that God would give us help. Father, we thank you for the way that you do not just provide hope, but you also show us the problem. For the way that we can see the depths of Sin and the depths of where we would be without you, and it can enhance our worship of you. Pray that as we look at this spirit, you would be active through the words that I say, through the thoughts that are going through all of the minds here in this place. That you would be speaking to our hearts. That you would be changing our lives. That this would not be a time of hearing merely human words, but that you would be speaking. That the word of God would be coming to bear on human hearts, and that we would be changed into the image of Jesus more. After this time than we were prior, that all of this would be for your glory and for your worship. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's always an interesting time when you're thinking through like what you're supposed to put on the notes slides and stuff in sermon prep and like what you're gonna call a sermon and all this. And you know, sermon titles, there's there's a special verse at the end of Revelation 2 where it says the preacher must always have a sermon title. I don't know, you might not have seen that letter before. It's kind of hidden back in the back of the Bible. But this, uh, I titled this sermon Universal Sin, Faithful Judge. It also could have been called something like Real Universalism, Everyone's a Failure, uh, <laughs> I was Pondering That, or False Supremacy, uh, any number of things. There's multiple themes that intertwine here. But part of what we have to see is from the first step of Romans 1.16, Paul's telling us this letter is about God's faithfulness and about his working out of salvation throughout history. So if we were to look at this chapter and settle only with all are condemned or there is none righteous, no not one, and that were our summary message or something, we'd be missing the real point. That is, though there is none righteous, no not one, God is faithful and he's working out this plan of salvation. So as we start in on the first few verses here, the first summary point to consider is that privileged Unbelief can't stop God's faithfulness. Privileged unbelief can't stop God's faithfulness. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? God, why did, why did I have my babies snipped after they were born? Like, what is, what is the point of this then if it doesn't automatically rescue me, save me? Much in every way is the advantage. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, So Paul says, yes, there is an advantage to being a Jew. You were given the word. You were given the Torah. You were rescued from Exodus. You were given practices to establish a faith and remind you of faith. You were rescued from exile and brought back even after turning away as a nation. You were entrusted with the oracles of God. So yes, there's an advantage there. There's a privilege to being a Jew. And yet, Verse three, what if some were unfaithful? And he says, what if, and, and we know it is an if. right? Like, it's a reality. It's not just a, a hy- um, hypothetical what if. Like, maybe, can you conceive of the possibility someone might be unfaithful? It's like, well, no, look around. <laughs> look where we, we went, we went to Babylon. We went to Assyria. We were unfaithful, as a Jewish people, Paul's saying. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithful, faithlessness Nullify the faithfulness of God. So you have this issue where the Jews are privileged, but unbelief wastes privilege. And I was, I was starting to try to just find somewhere that someone had written a story up, a little biopic that I could know, read this article here and it'd be called Cool, but I couldn't find one. But you've all heard of this, where someone is born into great wealth and then they squander it. Now whether that's modern wealth where it's like their parents are making a bunch and pay for all their college and pay for all their everything, they give them a car when they're five and they give them their first beer when they're 10, like all this kind of stuff and they get through life and they never have to do anything and you're like, oh my goodness, they're so spoiled. Maybe they squander it in terms of their character or maybe they just completely squander it and they're homeless because they've done nothing with their lives and they don't know how to work or feed themselves or anything despite having tons of monetary privilege tons of monetary opportunity behind them they squander it all so are they privileged yep but then it gets squandered through you know lack of care for their family or or lack of recognition that they need to work hard like their parents did or whatever else whatever their unbelief so to speak is in the course of their life they squander it and it comes to nothing similarly the jews were a very privileged people but squandered the privilege they were given they were given the oracles of god They turned away. They didn't get it. They took it wrongly. But despite that fact, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? We're saying that God is is being faithful, right? This is the whole charge. Paul's saying God's being faithful. He's bringing salvation. Yeah, but they're unfaithful. Does that kill God's plan? Does that kill God's faithfulness? Because now he's saying he's going to work through his people. It didn't work. Is God unfaithful. We can't breeze over this question. It's a real one. It's a real one we should conflict with. God says, Abraham, I'm going to call you out, and you're going to be my people, and you're going to bless the world, and they utterly fail. (laughs) There is no sense in which the Jewish people turned into this grand blessing to the world. Huzzah. The Jewish people got powerful, and they became a grand kingdom, and King David was there, and they conquered all the enemies, and they were powerful. And they turned away from God and they splintered into two sides and they continued to have idolatry and everything else and they get worse and worse and worse and eventually they're exiled. The blessing to the nations is now in chains in far off lands. Looking back geographically toward Jerusalem, praying in hopes that maybe someday they'll be restored. But that is not a blessing to the world. That is not a country that has said we are God's people forever forever. Amen, and we want you all to come and understand this and experience this. We don't read in First and Second Kings and Chronicles of a history of a people who is just welcoming in the foreigners and showing them the truth and caring for them. Like we see Solomon bringing in the queen of Sheba, like, look at all my wealth, my monkeys and my <laughs> plants and everything else. Like, Okay, and perhaps he told her of, of God giving him that great wisdom But that doesn't turn into an evangelism story. Solomon, after all, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. They evangelized him. He brought in all their idols. So at the time when Israel might have been the greatest opportunity to bless the world during Solomon's reign, instead the world came in and brought its idols. And Israel accepted them and turned away. So has God failed? Because his whole plan, as stated, was through Abraham bless the world, didn't happen. So don't freeze over this question, has God failed? And then the answer. This is the first time in Romans that we encounter this phrase in Greek. And I'm gonna make you learn it. I never make you learn Greek phrases, but this one's so cool. And it comes up several times. And it's, I just feel it's so much stronger in Greek than it is in English. And we have to find different ways to translate it and everything else to try to make it happen. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? May ganoita. So go ahead, say that out loud. May ganoita. May ganoita. may ganoita. may ganoita. It's two words. One is may, and that doesn't mean a month. May means like no, it's a negation phrase. So whatever follows may is being reversed, is being negative, canceled out. Okay, so may by itself means almost nothing. It's a, it's a not this thing. Genoita is a verb The verb to become, to come about, to come into existence, to come to being. So my own like Eric slang from growing up in the 90s translation of this first phrase is don't even think about it. Like may it never come into being is what Paul is saying by the combination of those two words, meganoita, let it not become. So like has their faithfulness nullified the faithfulness of God? Don't even think about it. Like, it's not even worth considering because it's so not possible that the faithlessness of people would nullify, cancel out the faithfulness of God. He is still faithful. Verse four, the rest of it. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So this first question of privileged unbelief and the impact, does it stop God's faithfulness? (laughs) Meganoita, don't even think about it not a consideration in the world, let it not come to be that someone would think that, because God is still faithful. He is still working in this. He is true even if everyone in all of existence is a liar. We're about to enter the wonderful world of deep fakes everywhere. Thank you, AI. We're already starting to get it. New Hampshire got some calls from Joe Biden that weren't real, uh, but it sure sounded like him. New Hampshire Democrats, I don't know if you all heard about this or not, some people did, some people didn't, but just leading up to the Republican primaries, and I guess it was also like some Democrat primary happened at the same time or something, but a bunch of Democrats registered as Democrats got calls from Joe Biden, his voice, his mannerisms, sounded just like him, letting them know they did not need to go out and vote tomorrow. I think most of them still went and voted, probably, but maybe they didn't, maybe some didn't. It was Joe Biden. You could be so sure it was his voice, his mannerisms. It wasn't really Joe Biden. It's what we call deepfake technology. It's happening in terms of audio. It's happening in terms of video. There was a, uh, there was a guy in Japan who uh, apparently had a deepfake video conference with four leaders of the company who told him they needed to quickly wire $25 million to some place for like a business deal thing that was vital and he was in a financial position to do so, in terms of the company's operations, and so he did. Four different people, on video, on a conference call, convincingly deep enough for this financial guy to proceed with this operation. Why am I saying this? What if the entire world were a lie? What if you can't trust the communications you're receiving? What if the daily news show, you don't know if it's deep faked or not? Guys, this is actually a reality that we're going to be facing soon. Let God be considered true, though everything else were a lie. <laughs> though everything else is untrustworthy, though everything else is unknown and uncertain, you have to double-check it and triple-check it, and you have different processes you set up so that you no longer give away 25 million just because there was a deep-fake conference call, but you have a you know, double-check and a triple-check and a fourth person involved or whatever, though you're setting up processes to deal with lies all around you. God is true. That's huge. And that's Paul's counter-argument for saying, does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? It's like, no, let it not even be considered. Even if everything else were a lie, God is true. Even if everything you're counting on turns out to be a lie, turns out to be not as substantial as you thought it was, turns out to be not the hope you thought it could be, God is true. God is faithful. Part two starting in verse five. Entitled, rationalized unbelief can't stop God's faithfulness. Okay, Paul, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way. God, if, <laughs> if my unrighteousness shows how righteous you are, not very fair to punish me, right? Like I'm living for your glory, you see. You see, when, when I lie and you're true and when I, when I punch someone and you wouldn't do that, it, it shows your glory. So I'm living for your glory, God. I'm living for your glory. This is the self-serving illogic of sin. Excusing sin in very convenient ways so that I can continue with my living the way I want to do it and find whatever warped reasons and warped ways of proving it must be fine. It's almost as if someone were to sit here and say, "God should thank me for making him look so good." <laughs> you sit down, you're talking to your son or daughter, or your friend, or your coworker, you're like, "Hey, you've been lying a lot, you've been really insulting. You've been, you know, hitting your brother, stealing his stuff." You've been doing all these things really concerned about you. you. You've said that you want to follow Jesus, but you're really not living in, you know, consistently with, with what he said. And they turn to you and say, yeah, God should thank me. Isn't it great? Like, glory to God. You can see the contrast of how great he is and how, how warped I've been. But hey, he's, he's good. You can see his glory. Or uh, the, the most surprising, long-lasting movie... Uh, series, in my opinion at least, is the Saw movies. I'm gonna hope that you haven't actually seen them because <laughs> they would terrify your dreams, I'm sure. Um, Saw, it's not just a past tense of see; it's also a tool that's been used in those movies for very nefarious purposes. Uh, they're in the category of what came to be called torture porn, like movies that are just really violent, and for some reason people really, really like to see said violent movies. They are not worth seeing or giving money to in any regard. I'm going to disclaimer this thing to the moon. I am not promoting the Saw movies. (laughs) What I am saying is I'm using the Saw movies here to show exactly the problem that we're looking at. The Saw movies are literally about a guy who puts people in torture situations. His reasoning is that if they make it through said torture situations, they will appreciate life more. He's helping them, you see. He's philanthropic, even. <laughs> like I'm gonna do this to you, this gross, torturous kind of thing. Because after you get out of it, you're gonna love life. You see, you'll appreciate it more than you did prior, because you'll realize what pain can be like and what the straits you could be in. So after you come out of it, you'll just love life, and you can thank me for it. That's, that's exactly what we're dealing with when people wanna say, My unrighteousness shows God's faithfulness. It shows his righteousness. So why would he punish me? He's unfair to punish. He was really unfair to punish me. So our second meganoita is in verse six. You know, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Meganoita. Let it not even be considered. By no means. Because if God was unrighteous to punish you, how could he judge the world? He is the judge of all. He's the judge of the entire world of the universe. Well, but if, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner, right? If by this torture you're gonna appreciate life more, why is it a bad thing? Doing a horrible thing that God can use for good doesn't make the horrible thing a good thing. And I think we all generally get that as a concept, but I think it's also worth remembering that we rationalize our sin far too often. We find ways to to decide that our sin's okay, to excuse it, and, and we get pretty warped at times. Or why not do evil that good may come of it? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. But this is the exact response we could give to the life of Joseph, Joseph, who was thrown into slavery by bitter and revengeful brothers, and God used that to rescue his whole family into Egypt during the famine and to to deliver them, and Joseph says to them, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And we could respond, hey, if I do evil, God can use it for good. If I do evil, it shows how great God is, by contrast. If I do evil, then God's goodness, by contrast, shows his glory. So is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? No, he's not. (laughs) He's not. Evil is still evil. So God is faithful, not unrighteous, to punish, to bring judgment where judgment is due, and to bring that to all of us. We don't need to be like the Jigsaw character in the Saw movies to be sinfully deserving of God's wrath. We just need to be sinners on this earth, which is every one of us, every single one of us. So then universal sin is called to account. What then, verse 9, are we Jews any better off? Okay, now remember, the Jews are privileged. That's established at the start of this. They're privileged. They're given the oracles of God. But are we any better off? No, not at all. Despite privilege, despite the opportunity, no better off. It's been squandered through unbelief. It's been, the whole point's been missed along the way. So are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none righteous, no, not one. This, this sequence that he quotes, this is not one single quote. It's kind of an amalgamation of various quotes from Psalms and throughout Scripture. But he kind of goes like briefly kind of from head to foot there in, in verses 13 to uh, 16, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, right? So there's head. Like your, your whole mouth and existence up here, your throat, you're lying and cursing and bitterness. And then their feet, verse 15, are swift to shed blood and in their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. So from, from head to toe, there's this wickedness. There's this evil. There's this sin. But also notice he does say their feet are swift to shed blood. That sounds kind of like murder. So, hey, that's, that's something we would call like a bad sin. But verse 13, they deceive. They lie. They talk bad about people. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Can any of us say that we don't struggle with the things that we say about others or the things we say about the president or about the mayor or about a neighbor, or about the person who just cut us off on the highway, or about the person who's going so slow in front of us in the line at the grocery store, or whatever. Anything that inconveniences my life is clearly your fault, so I might as well just mentally insult you about it, because that's, that's right. So we can't just read this and be like, oh yeah, that's not me, thank God. Thank God I'm not like that person. No, Paul is calling out first and foremost our speech, which is, everybody in existence. We can't just say, I'm not some murderer. My feet aren't swift to shed blood, Paul. I'm okay. No, you speak poorly of others. You speak poorly of God sometimes. You speak poorly of the people that he's put in place over you. You, just like them, are are caught in this. We talk a lot in sports and in other categories about wasted talent, similar to the squandered wealth thing that we saw with the Jews. But You've got privilege, you've got ability, and then you just don't have any work ethic to go with it. You completely waste the talent. And this is, Paul says, are the Jews any better off? No. We're like, well, they are privileged, but they didn't use it, and they end up in the same place or worse as others. It's the same thing for us growing up in Christian houses sometimes. Not all of us did, but many of us did. Go to church for many years, Maybe go to youth group, go to conferences, go to Christian concerts. You get a Christian TV and Christian concert and Christian light bulbs and Christian books and Christian clothing and Christian everything. Christian hairdo, <laughs> Christian sunglasses. All of my existence is gonna, all my material things are gonna be saved. That's the, they're all gonna be Christian things, right? You have actually a place of privilege in that regard, being closer to the truth. And yet, being that close to the truth, you still can squander it all. You can still be reflecting later, and someone would say, what then, are you any better off? And you'd have to honestly say, no, not at all, I, I wasted it all. been in church my whole life and never gotten it, never seen God's glory, never seen my need. I've been around Christian everything for my entire existence, and it's all just cliche to me now. And I walk past a poster that says, give thanks to the Lord, he is good, and I'm just like, hey, Whatever squandering everything. Head to foot, all are sinful, and we have to accept that fact. One of the difficult dynamics with the story of Les Miserables is that it shows that even the most sympathetic character, most sympathetic person is actually justly condemned for their wrongdoing, for their sin. Throughout that story, there's a character who early on commits a crime And then through a series of circumstances, gets away with it. And also through that series of circumstances, turns into a very merciful, generous, kind, loving, caring person. Just so kind, so wonderful, making the community around better. And I'm not saying any of this sarcastically. That's like literally what's going on. Very kind character. The whole time you're watching with this character and you're wanting wanting the best for them because you're seeing them do all this good stuff. But all throughout... As the protagonist is this kind, generous person, there's an antagonist who is a policeman and who knows that this protagonist has done wrong, doesn't know who he is at first, but she finds out and is relentless in chasing him down for the sake of justice. By the end of the story, as the reader, you're generally like, man, that guy is such a punk. He's like, he won't give him a break. He won't just go away and let him just rest in peace with his life and and be kind to people. The reality is, no matter how good he's been, he still is justly in a place where he's broken a law and actually is deserving of punishment. And when we go through that story and we're sitting there wishing the policeman would just go away, it shows how much, even in our own hearts, we often want to just excuse sin. We don't understand what it means to be 100% holy or condemned. We like to think that there are these layers of sin and layers of goodness and as long as you're good enough, it's good enough and we're cool. We like to operate that way but that's not the way justice works. That's not the way actual righteousness works. So this whole sequence, there's none righteous, no not one, all of this, it condemns the Jews, it condemns the Gentiles, it condemns all of us. And this is where we get that that universalism Universalism, theologically, is the claim or belief that everyone's going to be saved someday. Universalism, biblically, is the statement that everyone's sinful and condemned, (laughs) which is right here. Everyone, everywhere, stuck. There's none righteous, no, not one. But God is the faithful and merciful judge of all. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And next week, this is gonna get developed even more in terms of specifically what God has done to provide the way of this hope and this peace. But this is the reason why this text is exciting, is this section Whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You know when you're sitting there and someone's making an excuse to you or a bunch of excuses? And you're, you know, whether it's like a work situation or a parent and child situation or a friend or whatever, there's a litany of excuses for the current conflict that you're trying to deal with with them. And you're just like, stop, stop, silence your mouth. Be shushed, shut up, any of these words I must say to get you to stop for a second because you've got nothing here. Stop, be calm, listen. It's, the law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced. Everyone in the whole world who would have their, but God, I, is silenced. Everyone in the whole world who would say, yeah, but you didn't, is silenced. Everyone who wants to say, if you would have just shown me enough, Is silenced. Everyone wants to say, I did did most of it, I was good, look at them, is silenced. Every single excuse you want to list off before God, every single excuse that your neighbor or someone across the country or someone across the world wants to list off before God is silenced before him. And this is a good thing. You know when you're trying to teach the person in that interaction and trying to help them through the thing, and the reason that you want them just to be quiet is because you're trying to help them learn and grow through it, to accept where they're at so they can affirm it and grow through it. And God's like, you're all done speaking. Because you can see here, you're actually condemned by this. So let's just recognize that and grow through it instead of constantly making these excuses. There is great mercy here because God's alternate option would be to just leave us in our sin and not tell us about it. Like a doctor to whom you go, and they don't want to give you so much bad news, so they just let you live with the bad news without telling you. (laughs) Hey, you're fine. Keep drinking milk. All right. Have a great day. Meanwhile, you've got like terminal cancer, and you're going to die in three weeks, right? But they're like, I don't want to tell them that. You see, I don't like confrontation. (laughs) I don't want to make them feel bad. You see, I don't like hurting people's feelings, and then they might, like, he might cry for days. She might, she might be weepy. For, for, she might just like, be crying for the final four weeks of her life rather than being able to at least enjoy them before she conks off one day. Like, I don't want to do that. That'd be a very horrible doctor, but <laughs> not be a kind and merciful doctor who is unwilling to give a faithful diagnosis. God in his mercy shows us the problem, and his mercy calls us out to recognize the problem. So praise him who points it out. Right? Like it's, it's not, oh my goodness, God, you won't give us a break. <laughs> like my throat's an open grave and I can deceive of my lips and my feet are swift to shed, but give me a break. No. No, he's, he's calling out to you to let you know, here's the problem, I've already got the answer. <laughs> but would you affirm the problem so I can give you the answer? Because when someone says, Nah, it's not a problem, you're trying to tell them, hey, You've been smoking your whole life. You're going to get lung cancer and die. Or you've been wasting all your money on gambling. You're going to have no money left and you're going to be homeless. And if they just say, "No, it's not a problem." Spin another round. "No, it's not a problem. I put a, a place a bet this next throw is going for a touchdown." Right? Like they're going to end up in a horrible spot and you can't help them unless they're willing to affirm the problem. And God's not just letting us off loose on this. He's like, no, this is a problem, guys. This is a problem. Are you going to see it and be redeemed? Even to the privileged. Like, this is not bitter God, like, man, Jews, I gave you everything. I led you along by the hand. Your, feet, your sandals didn't wear out as you went through the desert for 40 years. I gave you manna from the sky. I gave you birds. I gave you the law. I gave you Moses. He was a cool guy. I gave you Joshua after him. And also, in case you've never noticed, newsflash, after Joshua, they didn't even celebrate Passover for a couple hundred years until Josiah discovered it, King Josiah, when he's reading the law. Now, think about that. Samuel and all the judges, David, Solomon, all of this. Didn't even celebrate Passover the entire time they had forgotten about it. I rescued you from Egypt and you wouldn't even celebrate the meal to remember. Right? Like this isn't, there's no bitterness from God here in this. It's like I'm still gonna show you the problem. (laughs) Even to the privileged. It's not like, yeah, you've squandered your chance. I'll go tell those guys over there who didn't have so much privilege as you. No. Universally, God is showing the problem. Universally, God is calling to grace and mercy. Calling the whole world to be accountable to him. The whole world to step up and realize the difficulty, to realize the impact of sin. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account There's a little toy that's often used by girls, perhaps you've heard of it, the Barbie. Um, Little doll, right? Barbies get dressed up in many different ways, in many different clothing. They're both men and women Barbies. And the interesting thing is, if you don't put them in clothing, you don't know which one's rich and which one's not. You don't know which one is the doctor and which one is the patient. You don't know which one's the teacher and which one's the student. They're all just little naked Barbies laying there. They're all fully exposed just as what they are. We are all Barbies together, right? Like that's, that's what they are. That's all they could say is, yeah, we're just Barbies. <laughs> no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The whole world is called accountable to God, and it doesn't matter what covering you have, whether, whether literal physical covering or symbolic covering. Right? Someone can put themselves in a bunker that is nuke-proof, a bunker f- through which radiation will never come, and they are still exposed to God. You can dress yourself up in your finest garb, and you are still exposed to God. You cannot dress yourself up in finest garb, because you're not going to be like those legalists, and you're still exposed to God. You can put whatever kind of self-righteous standard you want around yourself to wrap up yourself and at the end of the day, you're just a human exposed to God. Like a Barbie laying there that hasn't been clothed yet, and it's just a Barbie. No status, no symbol. It doesn't matter whether you're homeless or whether you're the richest guy in the world. Doesn't matter where you're at, doesn't matter how much money you have. Like, if you have millions of dollars, God can bring along a crisis to take you bankrupt. If you have no dollars, God can bring along a crisis to take you bankrupt. <laughs> doesn't matter where you are, what you have, what status you have. None of that stuff matters. Your car, your house, what your favorite food is, whether you're enough of a foodie to impress the foodies or whether you just eat whatever you feel like and they don't care, whether you listen to the right music or the wrong music, the right movies, the wrong movies, whether you do all the right things, whether you homeschool or don't homeschool, because we all know that one of those is probably wrong and the other one is probably righteous, apparently. We'll fight about it until we're all dead, so... Oh, sorry, private school also. They're the real elite ones. <laughs> we know that because they're paying extra money for it. And we know that in American society, if you pay extra money, that means you're better. So private school is actually better because they're paying more money. So, yeah, right? And God's like, money, what are, you, <sighs> what are you talking about? You are all alike exposed to God. And everyone out there in the world around us is alike exposed to God. There is no status There was no higher or lesser, greater or smaller. There's a bunch of sinners in need of Jesus. All alike, all in the same place. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And this is where it's interesting because the Jews didn't seem to fully get it and we often don't seem to fully get it either. When we look back at the Old Testament, God saved his people and he gave them the law. And so often we take it like, all right, well, they had to live by that law in order to be saved. That's not true. They were already rescued from Egypt. They didn't prove a thing before God brought his grace to them. God rescued them, and then he said, here's how I want you to live like me. You remember when God called Abraham, he said, I will make you a blessing to the nations. When God called the people in Exodus and Leviticus with the initial giving of the law, he said, here's how you should reflect me to the nations. So this whole point of The law, broadly conceived, like it it gave order to their society, yes. Like it did a lot of good things in terms of just human structure. But it taught Israel, it was supposed to teach Israel how to be like God. How to show the nations around them God's glory. And to say, hey, this is an amazing God. And if we look at the laws around Israel at the time in that context, the codes of the Assyrians and the Persians and everyone else, the law God gave Basically, every point is more merciful, more kind, more loving, more gracious, more good. Like all these things, and it's it's interesting because we look back on it now, like a bunch of intellectual snobs and elitists <laughs> who are in a different societal structure, and we go, oh, those laws were restrictive and stupid. Those laws were life-giving and generous. And we often fail to see that. And we often fail to see what God was actually doing in a bunch of that, because we very easily take snippets, because those fit better on Twitter and we quote them and say God's dumb, or quote them and say God's confusing, or whatever. It's just not true. God gave the people the law, but he didn't give it to them to save them. He had already saved them, and he calls them to live like him. And what he ultimately did with the law is he showed them, yeah, you're a bunch of sinners who are stuck and can't do it. Like, so here's, I've saved you, here's how to live like me. Go, go forth and prosper. And they're like, ah, can't do that, oh, can't do that, can't do that. The whole history of the Old Testament shows the failure of humans given every privilege to be God's people in their own strength, to live out as God's people. And yes, they had lots of sacrifices along the way. It's part of like the ceremonial cleansing of being before God, that sort of thing. But none of that was, if you don't do this, exodus didn't happen. They're already rescued. They're already in the land. They're already about to go in the land when they were given the law. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. A huge part of what the law did was showed people, you can't make it. Even you Jews with all the privileges and all the everything, if if anyone was ever in a position to succeed in being like God in terms of human privileges and capabilities, it was the Jews. Like he's in a pillar of fire and the smoke leading through the desert. He's giving them water from rocks. He's giving them food from the sky, all these things. Like you wanna talk about, if only God would show me a miracle, if only God would whatever, if only God would whatever, all that stuff happened for the Jews (laughs) as they're coming out of Exodus. Plagues on the people to get them out of Exodus in the first place, which are already astounding. Then all the stuff, stack up all the privilege and it still fails. So what do we do with all this? Because we've got, God's holding the whole world accountable and God's so gracious as to point it out to us and to give us the diagnosis. I think one of the first things we need to realize here is that this description in chapter 3, 1 through 20, this is what free will really looks like when trapped under sin. When God gives people privilege and opportunity and and gets them a leg up out of their sin and whatever else... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Their throat is an open grave. The venomous ass is under their lips. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a description of all people. If God were to leave us to ourselves, leave us for our perfect love to come to him, we would have no hope. None at all. No one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. This is the real universalism, and it's not good news, it's not a gospel. The real universalism is the reality staring us in the face that the entire universe would have no hope in any regard, even when giving a leg up. Like it's not just that God preserved us from being as wicked as we could be, he did. Like common grace, sin does not ravage the world like it could people still do good things, relatively speaking. It's not just that, because he also gave the Jews in particular an extra leg up. He has demonstrated to us throughout salvation history that there is no chance in the world that if God were to leave us entirely to ourselves, that we would be rescued, or that we'd make it, or that we'd find him, or that we'd care. We'd be self-serving, self-excusing, sin-rationalizing, privilege-wasting people headed to hell. So, God stepping in to rescue us is awesome, is <laughs> worthy of all praise. And yet, in our democratic ideals, we demand fairness. And chapter three shows us what fairness would look like. All are condemned. This is utterly fair. And we have to come to grips with that part if we never have. When we we say fairness, let them choose, let them decide. Fairness, fairness, fairness. Here is fairness. Everyone alike equally has turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is very fair. Very, very eminently fair. God leaves people to what they really want. He leaves them to their sin. He turns them over. And people giving great fairness, great level playing field, all turned aside. All, 100%. Nobody's saved. God has no people right now at this point in Romans 3. Because all have turned aside. Together they become worthless. They're continuing to sin. They're continuing to run away. As we follow Paul's logical progression it is no wonder that he should ask things like, has God's faithfulness failed through their unbelief? Because there's no hope in this portion that all of a sudden there's gonna be a people that's a blessing to the world. There's no chance that this description in Romans 3, 10 through 18, is gonna bless the world. It's gonna take from the world a lot. It's gonna lie and deceive and shed blood and provide ruin and misery and no peace lots of war. Some people will profit from that at the expense of others. So we can have rich despots, cool. Yeah, we're good at that. (laughs) Rich dictators who have a lot of things. Someone might look at them and call them blessed. They're not. So God shows us where sin really leads in Romans 1 through 3. He shows us where an utterly fair approach would have brought us. Even the chosen people, even the privileged people turn aside and everyone else likewise is with them celebrating sin. And thank God that's not where he left us. (laughs) Thank God we get to next week, uh, David gets to celebrate the next section of Romans three as we look at all the hope that God has given. He provided a way, he made a way, so he didn't leave us there. But as we look at this as redeemed people, or as at least people who are attending church and might need to get a grip sometimes. This should still impact our perspective on life because this is where we all are except for Jesus. Every one of us, except for Jesus, are in this description. None righteous, no, not one. You don't seek God, you don't have peace, and you don't care about him except for Jesus. What that means is we should expect not just not just think it might happen expect flaws and failures in our lives in the lives of those around us and in the society that we all create this is the gospel <laughs> that humans are trapped in sin until one day God makes all things new we're trapped in sin and the things that we do have flaws and sin and failures we should never find ourselves as those who have been given the privilege of being enlightened by God through his scripture we should never find ourselves surprised that there is sin in someone's life. We're surprised that a structure that we created at a society has flaws and biases. Surprised that humans could actually do sinful things. What? This is, this is what we preach. Why would we be surprised that people do sin? Why would we be surprised that, that I sin or that you sin? Why would we be in a place where we're trapped in sin but we don't want to tell anyone because they might think worse of me? they can't think worse of you than what's already true. Right. Like, it's impossible for, even if I were sitting up here like, if you guys ever sin, I'm just gonna think, think so badly of you and you're gonna disappoint me, and blah, 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 I'm like, start yelling at you and all this. I could never think worse of you than what's already true. That without Jesus, you're reflected in this passage. <laughs> Be encouraged. <laughs> like, right? like, there's, there's no worse description I could give of you than what God has already given. Apart from Christ. So when you're stuck in sin, please reach out for help. You're not unique. We get in this thing where we think we're so unique from everyone else. Like as if everyone that comes to church on Sunday morning besides me is doing awesome. And I'm the only one here that struggles with anything ever. Well, or at least with this thing. You don't understand, Eric. I-, I get it. Sure. Sure, Eric. Most sins. But my sin? no. No one else deals with that, Eric. and They're all just going to judge me and think that I'm a horrible person. No. And if they do, that's their problem. If someone wants to judge you because you deal with sin, they don't understand the gospel. And this should impact our words to each other as well. As we're coming alongside our children, as we're coming alongside our friends, as we're coming alongside other people struggling with sin, we should be able to say, hey, I'm sorry to hear that, genuine. Like, it should hurt us to hear of sin. It's a sad thing. It's a painful thing but there is hope every time because of what Jesus did, not because of who you are or who I am or anything else, because of what Jesus did. Because we're all equal in this passage, we get hope for everybody. (laughs) There's there's no qualifications given. It's not like, well, some people actually had it a little better and they're the ones with more hope. No, no, you're just just all condemned. Congratulations. like Jesus can save you all the same (laughs) because you're all condemned the same. A thorough understanding of the gospel should fuel Bold gospel vulnerability. We should be able to come alongside each other. We should be able to share what we're going through so that we can help each other for one another's good and for the glory of God and not because, oh, it's safe enough here or or, this will make me look good because I'm talking about my sin or whatever. No, just because Jesus is so good and because there's no surprises here. There's no reason to think that my sin is unique. And this should also produce, on the other side of the conversation, Deep compassion. Because no matter what you may tell me, we come up after this service, you could be like, look, Eric, 10 years ago, I murdered someone. Well, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. That's still me without Jesus. Now, there'd be all sorts of implications to that statement that we might have to sort through, but the gospel is still true. That should not make me angry at you or whatever else. That That should break my heart with compassion to try to help you and share the gospel and minister to you and care for you. When in the midst of an argument with my wife or any of you with your spouse or with your children or whatever, the fact that they've sinned right now doesn't make you justified in being a jerk. <laughs> it's one of the things we see in here. Like guess God's, verse five, would we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. You know what? Sometimes, I, Eric, am unrighteous to inflict wrath on my children. Because sometimes what I'm doing is being selfish and condemning them for my selfishness, right? God does not judge unjustly. We certainly do many times. We should have hearts of compassion toward each other, even in the midst of our struggles. And if someone is struggling, that doesn't give me victory points over them. It doesn't give me an advantage It means we can see more clearly where they're struggling. And maybe I'm the blind one who can't actually see where I'm struggling in general. And God's giving them a gift of seeing some of their struggle. That doesn't mean I'm better. (laughs) It might mean I'm actually worse off because I haven't seen my sin yet. Vulnerability and compassion. There is no room for supremacy in the reality of sin and death. The reality that we all need mercy and grace from God. There is no supremacy there. There is only God's supremacy and a whole bunch of humans equally exposed and accountable to God, and therefore equally able to be saved and rejoice and encourage one another and work through life together for our collective good and His glory as He works in and through us. So there is universal sin and there is a faithful judge, ever faithful, and that impact can change our lives. So let's pray and uh, and sing and rejoice in his goodness in the midst of a very exciting text of scripture.